Welcome to the Chalk Up Podcast, where we'll explore professional coaches and athletes' mindsets, philosophies, experiences in the world of strength and conditioning. First question, but Nick, I was just sort of wondering if I could possibly ask you, what do you feel coaches are currently lacking in the industry? Um, whether they're just fresh out of uni or if they've done their certification or, or a certification, should I say, um, all the way to the experienced coach, what do you sort of see consistently they're lacking? I guess interesting way to, to pose the question. Um, I actually think um, there's actually way more available to them right now than there was when Stuart and I were kind of first growing up, um, you know, I think the, the difficulty is, is there is the ability to make sense of it and distill it down. You know, there's so much information available from so many sources where, you know, we would have access to Dan Paff's papers that he had got from being on coaching conferences around the world, but we had to wait for the physical paper and his oh, notes God. that were written on them, you know? Um, so, you know, which was great. We, that meant our mind had to be very inquiring and we had to kind of guess at a lot of stuff, really. And, and we had to pull from what I would call a lot more pure journals and papers. So if there's one thing, if I, if I want to go on your question of what they're lacking is sometimes maybe um, everything right now is all about it being applied and in context. What can I do instantly? rather than necessarily drilling down and critically think and maybe go into the purity of some of the problems that we're facing and maybe develop a few kind of theories or thought experiments before going, I love that exercise, I'm going to do it, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. as well. So, you know, I think, I think there's an abundance of information, but maybe um, either lacking the time or the ability to just distill down uh, and, and, and prioritise what the information really means for their coaching practice. And do you think, do you think so, like you said, you know, they get that bit of information or exercise, whatever, then they apply it straight away. Do you reckon they should almost, almost apply it and then reflect upon that and actually see if that, what they think does actually suit and then maybe change their opinion again? Or what do you sort of think on that sort of front with information out there? Like you said, there's so much out there, which is great, but it can be detrimental in some spec respect mm. so I, I always like the analogy of you know are you the cook or the chef and you know a cook is always going to steal recipes and cook to that recipe exactly how the chef wants it done you know um, but as you get a little bit better at that or one day you go into your store cupboard and you don't have the resources there anymore mm. you have to change it and covid has all been about we've not had the same resources available to us right yeah, so exactly. we've all you know needed to learn how to um adapt our ingredients a little bit into things as well at the same time so yeah i just i mean i'm saying this because this is me right I, i'm not saying that's everyone out there you know there's so much information available how do i distill it down how do i decide what's important for me right now so Hopefully I'm sharing that to your listeners as something which um, they, they feel was similar for them as, as well, because there has been a tsunami of information over the past 12 months. And, um, you know, I've questioned, and, and, and maybe you guys can question yourselves too, um, 
how much of that was really active learning versus kind of like just passive reading, you know, download this, download that, look at this, look at this, you know, and just how much did I truly absorb and it stayed with me? How much of it has just flowed through me, you know? So, um, so it's been a good experience with that over the last 12 months. I think one thing that kind of helped me stay focused was the, the building of the Altus Need for Speed course, you know, kept me very much on track with that as well. But again, I am this person who's always looking left to right to see what else is out there. Um, at one point, Stuart sort of dropped this article my way and it's from uh, uh, Josh or Josh, I always mispronounce names, J-A-R-C-H-E and it's the Performance Knowledge Mastery. And um, that kind of really helped me, um, you know, create a bit of a hierarchy of what, what was important for me to focus on. And it sounds weird, right? At 50 years of age, I'm still having to, you know, find ways of staying good on stuff uh, as well. And, and Dan Path helped me too, you know, having him around is, is awesome to, you know, um, kind of plot your pathway. And you know, even he still says himself, you know, he'll have one week he focuses on physiology, next week he'll focus on biomechanics, another week he focuses on other stuff. So he still has this kind of um, schedule, if you like, where each day of the week or certain weeks he'll he'll stay with a certain topic so it's always continual you know development and, and understanding of, of what people are talking about out there and with that nick how in it like obviously in, through social media and everything like that there's there's a lot of bullshit which goes on on yeah. social media and like from the yeah. UK, we see quite a lot of uh uh, American SNC coaches in like NFL teams and baseball doing very bizarre stuff. I don't know if you've seen quite a lot of that on social media at the moment um, with the prep of all the balls and the chains and all of that bizarre stuff going on from like a coaching point of view, a young coach, it's quite hard for them to, you know, cause they're going to be like top SNC coaches in their field. Like how do they cut through that? Would you just recommend going to read or read up and know your stuff? And it's the same as what Josh Fletcher also said that try and get your own philosophies. Don't, for example, like Mike Ball doesn't like certain things and don't just follow one, one person, make sure you take little bits and bits from everyone and then try and make your own philosophy. Have you, what's your opinion on the social media and that sort of front? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a huge source of information for us. And all I ask people to do is just stop and think. Um, you know, we, you, you, you acquire a certain level of information through your education and also through your experience. Uh, and sometimes the two don't always match up. So I'm always, you know, comparing and contrasting what's the formal education telling me, what's my experiences. And if you can then look to other people's experiences as well, you vicariously or through a constructionist kind of way can learn via other people's experiences too. But then, you know, that, that means at some point, um, you know, building your own philosophy, I think takes time. You know, that's not something you wake up and it's like, ping, this is what I believe in, but certainly start having some principles or heuristics that you start guiding your, your coaching or your planning and your interventions by. And um, often, I think um, we're in too much of a hurry to keep changing programs. We don't necessarily give them time. If we actually truly study, you know, the biology of adaptation, you know, consistency is a key thing. And, and, and I think right now, 
um, the principle of variability is, is becoming one of variety rather than variability in people's training programs. Um, and, you know, but variability is very important in that stability, adaptability kind of triangulation that goes on in, a, in, a, in how an athlete will, will develop uh, both their movements and their, if you want to call it their biological reserves to, to, to display their, their athletic skills um, as well. So patience sometimes is key as well. And it's nice to see, you know, other activities and exercises that people are coming up with. Um, but I would say, okay, so what stimulus is that giving me? Or is that giving the athlete rather? So, you know, and, and sometimes you just have to think it through as a thought experiment and make some assumptions. But it goes back to understanding, I think, you know, your physiology and your biomechanics, kinematically what's going on, kinetically what might be going on, um, what energy reserves are they drawing on to, to perform that? I, you know, how is it kind of fueled? And does that then give me the stimulus that, I, that I'm looking for? Um, and that, that's the way I would kind of evaluate any exercise that I see. Um, and then you've also got to think about the context that you might be using it in. Um, what problem am I trying to solve by including that one exercise? Like it's the deal breaker, right? Is yeah. that everything, the one exercise? Um, um, but it's nice to have it in your suite of, of options, you know? Um, you know, I, I, I find it very interesting, actually, in this COVID year when people haven't had their multi-million pound facilities or their, you know, their studios to go into, you know? So what exercises... What exercises have you, have you had to toss out of your program because of this period of time? Now you've gone back into your nice swanky facility. What, what are you putting back in again and why? If it was good enough over this last year to get rid of it. Yeah, that's a, gr that's a great thought process. Love that. Like, you know, if you've lasted or not lasted, but if you've trained without it, then and you've now gone into yeah into your multi-million pound facility do you actually need it in the toolbox do you actually need to utilize it bearing in mind you've adapted to it over mm. the past year or whatever you know every country is different but yeah that's that's a great thought process um is it actually worthwhile being in there if you've adapted to it not being there in in terms of in terms of obviously altis what is your biggest challenge um so far that you face um, now, so I would call, let's call it post-COVID, but it's not quite. But um, what's your biggest challenge so far that you face, Altis? Well, I think you know, as as a company, the biggest challenge we faced in, in the last twelve months was you know clearly losing uh, or having to postpone all our face-to-face -face activities. You know, from our from our you know coach education programs, you know the on-site ACPs to, you know, just not being able to train our athletes, you know, um, the contract here with Barton Health and South Lake Tahoe, stopping uh, funding for our PhD program and our internship stopping because that was bundled up in some other stuff, you know, the work in China. So that was that was the biggest challenge really that, you know, there's, a, there's obviously a huge business impact. You know, we, we aspire to, you know, to, to help develop coaches so that through coaching we can change lives and you know there's an authenticity I hope that you know our guys coach you know we're not just an online business education company right it's it's, it's through our network and everyone we share with so but the biggest challenge has been that in order to um, stay coaching this year we, we've had to sell 
you know, and, um, and it's pivoting really forward from that now that how do we ensure that we are continuing to, to provide um, content that's very valuable to performance sports coaches, sports performance coaches, strength and conditioning coaches, therapists, track and field coaches that, that is addressing the problems that they face. Um, so we're going to be continually, uh, you know, providing free content and, and, and adapting and modifying and our courses continually. Um, the, you know, and that's become now a, a major part of, of, of the company. Um, so, you know, we're moving forward with that, but as programs director, I'm not a programs director just for online education, right? I mean, you know, I've got a, I had a small consultancy with a group in, based in England called Unit, um, who are, you know, a, a performance-based health and fitness company with franchises. So I was doing work with them. You know, they get shut down, that stops. We've got that small contract out in India right now with Bridges of Sports Foundation that we're working on. So there are other active coaching and education programs. You know, I work with a couple of uh, elite skiers um, as well. So my role is outside of the track and field focus, you know, where else can we help and what other programs can we develop? So the challenge right now is, is, is are, are people starting to move back now to wanting more, you know, um, coaching support, uh, on-site programming and, and how we might, you know, start being able to build that, that back in uh, to our process. Mm. Of course, the biggest challenge to the other artist coaches, to Andreas, Kevin, is the Olympic Games coming up. Um, you know, um, the preparation of, of, of their athletes, you know, for the games um, has been massively challenging as it has been for everyone else. And not also notwithstanding the fact there's been so many different um, policies in different states that in some states, they've had to go and train fine all the time. You know, we've had restricted track access, restricted access to the Exos facility, et cetera, as well. So, you know, um, on, on, on the, on the athlete side, that's been, been very challenging too. Do you think it's helped the athletes in a, in a meant like a mental way to be able to, you know, still dig deep when they're just at home, you know, training on their own rather than coming in, obviously phys like physiological, physiological, it's going to have a massive impact, but mm. the mindset way. I think, you know, that, yeah, I mean, the, the, the ones that I found it most difficult for, I, I do some, like, uh, I, I work in some volunteer mentoring stuff here as well with youth groups and stuff too. And, you know, the kids, the kids that have been, you know, at home, not able to get out, play their sport, yeah. you know, even hearing that some of the school teachers are having to do like re-socialization activities with the kids, you know, um, because they have been basically at home all the time as well. So there's definitely a, a psychological issue I think that's going to emerge from this um, in, in, a, in a broad and maybe quite a specific sense. But also, I mean, if I can only speak about my, you know, my two skiers, I mean, the, the cool thing about those two is their boyfriend and girlfriend. Um, one's Canadian, one's American. So they, you know, the, the day I was about to start their COVID program, I actually looked at it and ripped it all up and had to start again because I'm, I'm like, actually, I forgot these two are going to have to train together all the time. Right. Now, they'd often come together, but Travis could do his thing and Marie could do her thing. But now limited equipment, space in the house together, can't yeah. go to a gym somewhere. It's, I had to think about the programming that mentally, I think 
they were both going to accept, but knowing that they weren't going to accept it because Travis is kind of a bit more, um, yeah, we'll kind of see how it goes. I might do a bit of this, do a bit of that, where Marie was very much what's on the sheet I'm going to do. Yeah. You know? But what it, what it enabled me to do really is I then thought about that in the programming is that I knew that like some of Travis is a little bit more willing to kind of adapt and flow on the day based on how we feel would, would rub off on Marie. Marie's kind of focus on getting in tune with her body and getting her body prepared properly would rub off a little bit on him. So it, it, it kind of strangely worked out um, going forward. And of course, now going forward in this year, it's like, have we now built a system where we're confident because of the level of the athletes they are at that I don't need to see them three times a week. I mean, you know, that we can, they can send me video of them training that I can feed back on. And, but they still value my eyes, my observations, the things that I can pick up, um, you know, within the warm-ups and from, from a movement observation point of view. But it's not necessarily something I have to be there for every single day. So maybe there's a bit of a mental shift of um, maybe non-dependency, not necessarily independent yeah. and not not saying they are dependent on me, but a little bit more ability to, um, you know, um, find another way to communicate, really, and, and uh, exchange ideas around their programming. What sort of uh, funky exercise did you get them to get up to? Was it just, did you stay to the basics or did you try and spice it up a bit? I know we had Pete Burridge on and he was, you know, getting them push all the rugby lads pushing cars and getting their girlfriends <laughs> to sit on their backs to still get some strength adaptation because obviously you're still going to get any volume. What was your protocol to go about it for those two? Well, I mean, I guess, you know, remember I had three years of history with them both to, as well. So I've, you know, I've kind of acquired um, a, a catalogue of activities. The, nothing really that funky, to be honest with you. I mean, the Altis Sprint Fit programme, that free PDF we have was useful. You know, to say, hey, here's some things to, to get out on the road outside your house and yeah. go and warm up and do stuff like that as well. Um, you know, some of the things where we didn't have enough load was probably the major issue. How do we do max strength if we don't really have, uh, you know, loads that are going to push that? So, you know, you just got to say, well, if I can't, if I'm, if I can't pick up this part of the continuum, all right. Well, if I pick up this bit, it's still going to have some effect here, right? Yeah. So what's the heaviest load we can move quickly um, as opposed to just what's the heaviest thing we can load? Um, but also, um, it actually gave me a little bit more time to focus a bit more in on some of the isometrics. Yeah. Uh, some of the oscillatory work. Yeah. yeah and also um, recognizing that if you, do a, if you do a walking lunge and you swing those weights up in the air, They've got to come down, right? <laughs> and so just just things like that, learning really how to manipulate the loads really to create a, a stimulus that might be okay. This is going to create a higher force that they have to attenuate than if I just keep the weights down by their side as they're doing a walking lunge. You know, doing a high knee walking lunge is going to change, you know, the load um, as they hit the ground. Now, if I'm swinging those up with a high knee, again, there's more force you know more um sorry scientific terms have gone out of my head here but you know there's more that they have to deal with as it comes to the ground so if i couldn't necessarily get the the maximal concentric then i was just finding other ways in which i can you know work those muscle mechanics 
Um, but nothing really too funky, to be honest. Um, you know, they had medicine balls. They, they loved their kind of um, slack line balance work. You know, they had TRXs. They had the power blocks. We had medicine balls, you know, as well. Um, and so we were probably about four or five weeks. And then because they were professional athletes, they were allowed to go to the gym. Okay. Uh, Valley, so then we could get in um, and really with Marie because she was shifting from being a tech skier to a downhill skier the main thing with her was that the best way I can describe it is that she's a twitchy athlete you know so if she's throwing a medicine ball you'll literally see her feet come off the ground before the ball's released right so what's key with her is keeping keeping force keep you no know, long force pressure into the ground so there's little cues like that that I could give her um, to focus on and then also like banded uh, squats were very useful for that as well to keep her kind of driving and not letting those feet come off the ground so you know, getting back into the weight room to do the banded squats was kind of helpful uh, but the medicine ball stuff obviously we could, we could kind of do anywhere yeah, yeah. You, sort, you sort of touched upon like you know your programming you the level of detail you sort of thought about which sounds silly but obviously you have to when you know like you said they're in close quarters working with each other all the time um so the detail has to be in but what do you think really what do you think or how do you create an amazing coach how do you go about creating an amazing coach or what do you think is it a blend of like knowledge or is it um would you start off with learning basics and then put application in, or would you apply and learn at the same time to get up that coaching experience? How, do, how would you go about it? You know, interestingly, um, something come to mind to me from, from actually uh, preparation for this, that it's been a while since I've actually coached a sport. Obviously I've been coaching training, Yeah, you know, um, but if I was to say, how did I develop as a good sports scientist, as a good strength and conditioning coach? I think it's because parallel with that, I was still coaching sport. I was coaching rugby and I was coaching football. Um, so again, it's a bias maybe, but I'd, I would say, make sure you're coaching a sport. You know, uh, one guy I actually admire a lot was James Marshall down at Excelsior Performance, how he said, right, I'm going to become a gymnastics coach going to get my weightlifting qualifications, do a bit of track and field and base my youth development programs around those three things. And he went out and got those coaching qualifications right. under his belt as well. And so I do think it's important to um, have at least a level one, if not a level two in maybe one or two other sports. So you, you learn about coaching. Um, I think sports science degrees, um, and maybe to differentiate themselves in the market are getting maybe ever more specialist. You know, clearly now we actually have strength and conditioning degrees. Um, maybe this might be a little bit outrageous. I'm not sure that was necessary. I think, you know, a good sports science degree where I am going to focus my attentions on being a strength and conditioning coach, but give me that broader base of science to work from. And then through your projects and studies and dissertation, you can specialize into that same with master's degrees, you know, um, but I guess they probably are just masters of sports science, just called strength and conditioning to, to get the, to get the people in. Right. Yeah. yeah. And with, um, with that, like you've got the, so it's really, we thought, well, I think, and I'm sure Mike thinks that's really important to have coached a variety of people. Like, you know, when you're doing your degree, it's important to go and coach general public so you can understand humans and, understand different environments 
Um, but obviously with the degrees, there isn't much of that in there. It's very elite, if you know what I mean. So it's very like, mm -hmm. how do you coach in the perfect scenario? How do you coach with all the force platforms, with all the equipment, the labs, where when you actually get into fields and team sports, as well as general public, you don't have that, do you? No. No, and yeah, you made me think that. I mean, my undergraduate degree uh, was Newcastle Poly, which then became Northumbria. And probably, I don't know if this is done now, but you know, I was in a unique situation where the campus I lived on was where the, 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 the physical education degree for teaching was running. And also the campus I lived on was also where they had the physiotherapy before it became a degree was running. So I had this really unique opportunity to, to be living on a campus different from where I was actually doing my studies where the entire library was physical therapy and phys ed, you know? So I just was fortunate that's what I was getting exposed to as opposed to at this time, the, the new direction that phys ed degrees was going in, which was sports science because the Northumbria uh, Sunderland partnership at the time was one of the first of the new breed of like sports studies, sports science degrees. But we actually had modules called sport, practical sport experience. So I did fencing for a semester. I did orienteering for a semester. I chose the sports that I knew nothing about to go and try. You know, you could do swimming and other sports as well. And, um, and I also remember a key part of that was understanding time motion analysis. You weren't just doing that sport, you had to analyze the sport and become almost like a student of that sport itself. So that, that was kind of cool, um, you know, um, to be able to sort of keep, as you said, that more broader approach, but still recognize some commonalities that existed between all those sports. And that, in a way, is what drove me to start looking at track and field a lot more as really, the, in many respects, the basis for all sports performance. Um, of course, that's going to sound extremely biased now because I work for artists, but this was way back in the day, you know, yeah. and, um, you know, when I met Stuart doing my, my degree, my master's degree in Calgary and got involved with him, you know, running, running a, a sprinting group and stuff like that, that just became more and more apparent to me really how, you know, uh, experiences across different sports, getting focused on track and field, but then leaving there and then going back out to different sports again was super helpful. You know, um, working with younger athletes, older athletes, um, disability athletes. And, and you're right as well. I had a long period of time in Newcastle where I used to work at Body Zone, one of the local, you know, fitness gyms yeah. there as well, too, which, um, you know, probably helps you a lot with those relational skills and, and maybe how to, you know, use different language and different ways to coach people to get, to get them to do what it is you would, you think you need them to do. Yeah, it's almost like a continual learning approach to just in general in life I and mean, throughout your career. You know, you different, like you said, different athletes, young, old, professional, elite, um, general pop population with like, you know, corporate, you know, a lot of things are now getting into the corporate side of the world, trying to increase like the health and um, and the fitness in the corporate world. So you've got them different sort of like mentalities, like CEOs, high achieving people that sort of how they look and how they want to train um so yeah it's just that sort of variability and variety but like you that touched upon which i think is so essential so but the, the, the sort of like bare basics is that sort of foundation of knowledge that huge wide spectrum of knowledge across biomechanics physiology um and then applying it in different sports um as you said which is so essential do you think it is essential for a national accreditation or like um, the one in Britain or the one in the US sort of to, to become a great coach? 
No, not necessarily. I think there's there's, there's so many examples of, of people that haven't done that and and um, can become become good coaches. The you've got to take a step back and look at the geography, the landscape that that we were in when UKSCA and stuff emerged. Right, it was this, around the same time that the English Institute of Sport was also emerging. So all of a sudden, there was huge sums of money involved. You know, so everything had to be justified. So what's the simplest way to justify it? Let's make sure people got the pieces of paper that say they are skilled and expert because they've got the piece of paper, you know? Um, you know, a couple of times I was looked over for national lead jobs because I wasn't a PhD, you know? But do I know how to put a program together? Do I know how to develop staff, coaches, programs? Absolutely I do, but I didn't have a PhD, you know? Um, which obviously, as you know, is very specialist uh, mm -hmm. as well. And, you know, you can you from the AIS's emergence to now it's very much gone through everything was about the mid thigh pool and nothing else and now everything now is about relationships and you know it, it, it it's it's swung you know um and the same thing with with the UKSCA it was absolutely necessary to um provide some kind of uh benchmark some kind of milestone to say, hey, people are competent to this level um, by, by having this, this accreditation. And if you want to go into these jobs that's using government-funded money, it's part of the checklist, right? Yeah. Now, if you go and run your own facility and call yourself a strength and conditioning coach, it's not a chartered or licensed name. You don't necessarily need to go and do that and do general public really differentiate. You know, they... They differentiate by, are you any good or not? Yeah. <laughs> do, I you? do I like you? Am I getting the results? You know? So, you know, in, in a private facility, the entry point then to you is just that you happen to be there. Whether they stay with you or not, you know, comes with the journey you go on with them. The entry level to most SNC coaches getting into, you know, national governing body, Olympic pathway-based jobs was do you have UKCA or can you get it within the next few months? That that and then, and then you know you stayed in that job for one or two, three or four years, you know. Um, so you know, is it essential? I think it was essential to to kind of um, set the framework and, and and create some layers. And I think it has been essential to for us to have this discussion now, as in asking the question: Is it still essential? So if it isn't, then how do we make sure that um, our profession that we're all invested in um, has some safeguards, has some standards, has a pathway which says, hey, you know, you probably should be skilled in these areas. Uh, how does it create an organization whereby, you know, we have a network that we can go to and either contribute to to share our experiences or find people that we know, um, you know can be valuable to our learning and development as well. Um, so maybe not so essential now, but what else instead um, is, is where my head is thinking right now. So we, we, we had a, uh, we've had two people on who, uh, who have become mentors, so Owen and Josh, they're now mentors for SNC coaches. How, how important do you think having a mentor is out of uni? For an I mean, I took Josh on as a mentor once. Oh, have you? Did you? Yeah, and I, I mean, you know, I, I actually, um, 
I was looking around at the time and going, you know, there's some really smart young coaches out there. And, and I had interviewed Josh for a, for a job, actually, um, uh, with, uh, with the program we had with TAS at the time. And uh, he was doing some cool work. And he was at Rotherham at, uh, while I was at Sheffield Eagles. And um, I'm like, he's doing some cool stuff. Um, I'm going to see if he will spend some sessions with me. So I, I took him on to, to do some stuff with me. Likewise, another guy who was doing sports psychology and motivational interviewing. I didn't have the time to go to the structured, scheduled group sessions and book on a course, right? So for me, it was like mentoring is in my time. You know, it's up to me how I approach that person and, and we kind of figure that out, you know, um, as well. So I took on, took on this guy, Rory, Rory Mack, actually. He was an ex-volleyball player at Hallam. Uh, to be a mentor for me for motivational interviewing. Uh, years ago, I took on another sports psychologist called Mark Bellamy, uh, who, who also helped me and steered me a lot in my University of Durham days there too. Um, you know, I mean, every single day is a, is a mentoring day with me with the likes of Dan and Stu and Andreas and those guys around, you know, but I think to seek, to seek out specific mentoring, I think is, is very, very valuable. Um, and, and yeah, highly, highly recommended for sure. It sounds really silly, but would you find a mentor that's a good coach or would you find a mentor that's in the area that you want to work in or what would you sort of go about finding that sort of mentor? Does it have to be specific to where you want to be or? I think it can be either, right? I mean, you know, what, what is a mentor? Um, are they a guide? Are they the experts? It depends. You know, I think, they, I think they can be either or and both. So one of my mentors was a mathematician that I worked with for a while. But in the sense that um, he was actually a business development guy. And actually, he was actually one of the guys who put together the Duckworth-Lewis method for cricket uh, as well. And, you know, I, I had him working alongside me for a while. So, you know, with Andrew Walton, the physiotherapy clinic up in Newcastle, it was more to lean on his business experience, you know, as I was putting together the, the performance program for the University of Durham, you know, which, you know, wasn't free. I had to make, had to make money. Uh, for it for it to run um, so I think you identify what's my biggest problem I'm facing right now um, and then you've also got what would I really like to learn right now um, so there's kind of two areas I think you can take it um, so yeah I, I think it can be both you know um, that helps yeah no, no, it, it sounds like it's a little bit like the degree sort of thing like you almost like pick not pick and choose but you almost get different ideas from different people which then culminates together as you as yourself as a coach then you've you're built up of all these different ideas and different ways of thinking which is brilliant because it's versatile right um i just wondered your coaching philosophy has it always been the same or has it changed throughout your like, career is it is it developed as you've continued you know learning and developing or yeah, I think like I, I may have mentioned a bit earlier, I, I don't think I really had a philosophy when I first started. Um, I think the philosophy was I've been taught to train people this way, therefore that's what I will do. So you go with the knowledge that you're armed with and you start putting it out there and then that knowledge really starts to get challenged. It's like, I'm going to help these athletes get faster, fitter, stronger. Mm. And for some reason, some do. Some don't, and there's a bunch of them in the middle, 
you know, when you start going, oh, well, if they had followed all this, why isn't this happening? So you start realizing it's a bigger problem as well. So it becomes less about I've got all this knowledge, which is going to help me train this athlete. It becomes a reverse on itself. I need more, more knowledge and experience to help me do this better in the future as well. So I think it kind of flips a little bit. And therefore, through that, your philosophy starts, starts to evolve. Um, you know, I, I guess my bias is one of, um, I like the athletes to be a student of their sport, if that's a heuristic, maybe not a philosophy. I believe that my coaching approach should have a pedagogical kind of underpinnings in, in that, you know, I want education and learning to be threaded through it. Um, I believe that it's as much about the athlete performing to the highest levels and being as healthy as possible while doing that. And also that I'm part of the athlete's complex ecosystem. I'm not it. I'm part of a complex ecosystem that exists at an organizational level, both then the immediate team around the athlete and then the individual athlete themselves. Uh, and somewhere in there, I have control stroke influence over stuff um, that hopefully all combines to see a you know, a, a positive path for this athlete performing better at their sport, not just and only performing better at the exercises that I give them. You know, from a health and fitness point of view, that can be great because we have a different outcomes we're looking for. But with a performance athlete, it's about their performance. Um, so, sorry? got to translate to the sport hasn't it it doesn't matter if they can squat 300 to 200 kilos but if they can't essentially apply that to how fast they can run then yeah. it's not worth it is it can't perform yeah 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 that's a funny world we're in right now right because sometimes that argument is used to toss out the idea of getting strong doing squats yeah oh well it's you know and it's like well hold on a second here it's not a binary argument right it's no. not a yes or a no a this or a that so let's not look at it as a as one to be giving us ammunition to toss tried and tested traditional methods out of the water, right? Just because it doesn't suit someone's narrative right now, probably for something that they're trying to sell. Do you work with um, many endurance athletes? Not recently, no. I mean, yeah, in, in the recreational world, I have, yeah. you know, runners here. Um, and so uh, back in the day, I, I did some work for England Athletics, uh, as, as part of like some of their regional uh, professional development stuff as well. Derbyshire Institute of Sport had a, some middle distance runners and some uh, endurance cyclists as youth athletes as well. Um, so yeah, it's kind of come and gone. It's not been a, you know, a persistent focus where, you know, team sports was my most persistent focus within which of course there's endurance to consider. Um, so yeah, this come and gone. Yeah, because I just wanted like, the endurance side, like I'm, I'm a little bit involved in that now with the endurance, and I find it, I found it quite hard to get the athletes quite like engaged into actually starting to lift quite heavy as like an Ironman and a triathlete. They're quite commonly known like not to touch quite heavy weights. I don't know if you experienced that sort of stuff before with them, or they. Well, actually, I mean Dan Dan Coughlin, who I work with at England Golf, is the uh, you know. Um, as opposite to that, he's a super strong guy, and he's you know he does ultra Ironmans and stuff like that. I'm not saying he's the top of 
top of the game, but he definitely, you know, um, you know, advocates that for those type of athletes. Um, but it is right. It, it's, it's, yeah, they'll find it difficult to understand, you know. Yeah. Um, I remember, can you remember you know, some of your first weight training sessions where it's like, why isn't this moving? And yet when you go out running, you can still try to run harder and you can keep running, right? Your body doesn't stop. And so for any kid or younger athlete trying to understand, you know, why, why is this going to help me for? Um, that's kind of our job as well, right, is to work with them on, on their understanding of why this is important. It's sort of the education process as you go along, right? They're not. It's um, um, Adam Bishop was saying about the buy-in, you know, um, trying to get these players to buy into doing certain things, and it's just the education process as well. I, I still think now we are educators to certain athletes that don't understand what SNC is. What's the point of lifting heavy? Like Jim said about his like um, endurance athletes, um, we're educators in a sense to almost get that buy-in. Say, look, if we do this, it gets you to point B. Um, and that's sort of the way I try to think, you know, we're educators as well. Um, how do you sort of, how do you ensure yourself as a sort of director, um, a coach and obviously a father maintain sort of like a, a high, a high performing or achieving sort of lifestyle? You know, you're a, you've had so many years experience. How do you sort of maintain sort of that sort of high achieving and high performance life? which is a massive 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 question i know but i'm just i i just i would love to hear your opinion um mike mike show me a stat earlier what was the stat mike with the medals it was the oldest one it said um it's on the website it's it's just 100 olympians coached by oldest coaches 40 um olympic medals won by oldest coach athletes and 3000 plus coach educated by um oldest which is you know we spoke to owen and owen said you've got to make a change now to me just reading that like stat obviously i know it's face value and we were saying about face value sort of things earlier but to me that is making a massive change across a wide um variety of people um so yet yeah, how do you how do you ensure such a high achieving sort of career or lifestyle? Well, I, I guess I would I'd question how high achieving I've, I've personally been and how you would, how do you measure success or achievement? Um, <laughs> really my, 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 my greatest enjoyment right now is that after 20 something years, Stuart and I are working together again and we always said it would happen. You know, from from back in the mid '90s when I was doing my masters and we set up our first sort of little businesses together, to then you know very having very separate kind of pathways. He's always been at that kind of elite end where I've I've been on a roller coaster in my career. So if success is that I'm still here and I've I've survived, you know. Um, and somewhere through this journey, it, it's given exciting opportunities to my kids, to my family. Uh, look where we are living here right now, you know. Um, and you know, through all this, I've got some amazing friends and colleagues, and I'm meeting new friends and colleagues <laughs> through, through this sport thing that we do, you know. And, and I think it took a real mental switch for me at one time when... Jeff Cook, who I work with at Durham County Cricket Club, he said, um, if we can't make these 
young people, uh, elite cricketers. Um, I want to make sure they leave here as elite people. And that really shifted my mindset to me feeling like it was my responsibility for their fitness and their performance, where it wasn't. I'm just, I'm just a facilitator. You know, I'm a coach as an educator and as a facilitator with them. And I would do my, my best job to do that. And, you know, that, that calmed me down a little bit. And in some, in some roles I had, that wasn't acceptable. I remember working at Derbyshire Institute of Sport and they wanted all this detailed testing of the young athletes. And I'm like, it's not really going to tell you much, you know, speak to the athletes about the experience they're having. You know, how much are they learning? What are they enjoying about being here? You know, and so I kind of, you know, I kind of flipped um, my um, idea of what my role was. So that that helped with some of the stress levels. Uh, losing jobs never helps. You know, I'm, you know, hired by the managers, typically not by the departments. And so if the manager goes, I go as well. And I'd probably say I've done a terrible job of balancing it, to be honest. Um, uh, speak to my family, you know, uh, the ups and downs that I've had, but the, the opportunities they've had to visit amazing places and, and do stuff is, is kind of cool. Um, I think, again, it, it's partly this roadmap you're on about, it's, it's about what I can do with my athletes, recognizing I don't know enough, so how do I further develop me but then how do I develop now the road upon which I can do more to help the entire ecosystem that we're in, you know, as well. Uh, and that brings a little bit of balance to it. Um, just going, yeah, I don't really know that much really, uh, but maybe I know just enough that I can positively help other people, whether that be coaches or, or athletes that I, that I train. And what was through that whole journey? What was the biggest mistakes you've made? Like, can you remember three big mistakes you made, which were like an absolute curveball, and they shifted your mindset and changed your way of thinking? Great question. Um, don't be such a dickhead at times. <laughs> um, I think that's, it, that's it, such an important one, though. When you know, if you're a coach. If you're a dickhead, the athletes or clients won't want to even be coached by you. Doesn't matter how good your program is, they won't have a buy-in, will they? No. No, and, and and then the thing with that though, at the time when I when I'm like, you know, um, stop thinking you know everything. You're a bit of an idiot. Um, you know, I was, I was um, it done in Kruger effect, right? I was super confident, maybe not as competent, and you know, at times you go, oh. I've maybe stepped over the precipice here a little bit, you know? Um, and then, but then becoming too passive in my work as well then. So that wasn't working for me either. That little bit of an edge that I've got or that little bit of inquiring mind or that ability sometimes to confront the issue immediately sometimes can be really important. You know, and I learned that more recently through training on crucial conversations um, that don't let things lie. So there was definitely one situation one biggest mistake I made and kind of goes to, to your question, Mike, a little bit as well was balance that I was, um, I was working a whole number of contracts at the same time. And um, I was terrible. You know, I was at Notts County, Derbyshire Institute of Sport, Sheffield Eagles, England golf and doing UKCA stuff at the weekends. I needed to make money. 
and and, th and that's that's the hardest thing when you are independent like that or you haven't got that one job it, it's a it's a tough industry to be in and i just spread myself way too thin and um I kind of went back to my, what I call my rule of three. You know, there's got to be one job that you do, which is maybe more of your day in, day out, which might take up 20 odd hours of your week. Then there's that one that you could do periodically, you know, that might be every other weekend or something like that. Then there's got to be that slow burner that you're doing. And these days people might call that your passive income job as well. So I try to kind of work to that if I can get a bit of a balance that way. Uh, in, in what I'm doing but that period of time I mean I look at that and I go, god you were terrible you know I, I built bad relationships I wasn't myself in those roles I lost confidence in myself in those roles the manager got fired uh, at Knox County and I, I felt I was partly to blame for that uh, as well um, too and that was a big re-evaluation period and and and, and through that as well, even when I was working at Shefford Eagles, there was, you know, some issues we had there going on at the time too, that I'm like, no, I've got to front these up because I can't afford to go to bed every night having this on my head and then waking up first thing in the morning thinking about it again, you know, as well. It was, it was, it was, I wasn't handling that very, very well. Um, so sometimes the, the most difficult problems are the ones that you don't face because you let them fester in your head uh as well um so i had to rationalize the work i was doing look at bringing other people on board which in itself became very very difficult because people wanted me they didn't want someone else i was bringing in you know as well so that that became really really challenging um on a more kind of um simple level uh than that i remember working with an athlete at hartlepool united Effion williams was a striker they brought in and he was doing really well banging in goals and he was like, you know, shit off a shovel. I mean, he was fast off the mark. You know, it, you know, people just stood still and he's already 10 yards past you, you know. But he himself said, look, I, I know I'm fast over that, you know, off the mark. And I, but I, I like to be faster over a bit, a bit of a longer distance. Oh, I can do that. <laughs> what a disaster that was. Uh, I mean, Literally, uh, I started doing some work and it was like, you know, more upright running stuff and things like that as well. And literally, I crushed his hamstrings, right? It was so sore and tight. <laughs> the manager had to bring him off in a game after 20 minutes because oh. he was just so sore. And the manager looked at me and he said, do that again and you're fired. But he let me learn. I mean, that's, that was a thing I learned. It's like, why, why didn't this stuff work, right? You know, because um, I failed to look at his unique abilities. I went, yeah, if I want to get you faster at running, it's up point running, we've got to do this stuff. There's going to be more of this, this, and this. Let's get you doing X, Y, and Z. I built the content, not the context, more so. You know, he was already 25, 26 years of age, this guy. But luckily that coach let me off the hook and let me learn. And uh, I think one of the other things I learned as well is that... Um, despite best laid plans always have a contingency and the example i'll give you there and i can i think i can freely say this now because it was a long while ago uh first day of pre-season newcastle united i'm there with paul winsper uh sky sports are there bobby robson alan shearer all those guys and paul's bringing me in to get all the testing done on on first day big show thing going on and we have this brand new uh new test sprint testing kit Great, brand new kit, great. 
go to start testing the players through their running. Didn't work. The battery was dead. Oh, no. <laughs> School <laughs> era. I used Bobby Robson. The battery is dead. Uh, my contingency was underneath the little handheld thing. I had a stopwatch. Every time someone went past, and I hit the stopwatch, it made a beep. <laughs> so, it, so it sounded like the system was working. Nice. Perfect. That was, that was a scary time as well. Again, luckily, Paul there at the time was like, okay, we got through that one. Uh, what, how do we double check that in the future? You know, I mean, you just assumed the equipment was, was going to work. It was on charge all night. Yeah, yeah. And it didn't. So what was the contingency? <laughs> crazy, crazy, crazy. Um, uh, where do you, interesting question, where do you see yourself in the next five years? Career-wise, is there anything in the pipeline or do you want to do anything? Like, um, yeah, do you want to, where do you see yourself in the next five years? You know, I, uh, great question. And going, going to my kind of rule of three that I mentioned earlier, you know, to be able to build a, you know, a sport performance program with Altis, um, both in terms of the education of coaches, the development of athletes in, in, our, in our next location would be, would be ideal. And uh, to head up that, that program development, look at staff to recruit and, and put those, those programs in place uh, would be one thing I'd love to do. Because that then blends both my desire to, I, I just love helping people learn. I love learning myself. I, I learn loads by, by being the facilitator of the education uh, as well. So that would be uh, part of plan A. Uh, part of plan B would then, you know, still to have uh, the athletes that I, I coach myself. I mean, my two Olympians in skiing right now. Are they going to the um, I don't know their plans. Are. Uh, in the Olympics this year? Yeah, yeah. Winter? Yeah, the Winter Games, yeah. You know, so they just, you know, they've done well. So I don't know what their plans are after this. You know, I've got a young skier up and coming here as well. So some way in which I can provide coaching, you know, in that hybrid sense, right? Some on site, some online and, and build a, a successful way to coach that way. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like to like to look at. And, um, you know, I think the... Um, the, the kind of nice to do would maybe look at a professional doctorate and, and how that can really, you know, um, support the growth of Altis um, you know, around, around, you know, the, the, the question and problem of speed in team sports. You know, we're, we're pretty confident and, and maybe wrongly, but somewhat way more certain about strength and about en energy systems and stuff like that in, in the work with our team sports athletes whether we see it as you know injury risk reduction or, or those things but you know speed is is kind of like the the mythological creature right now out there it's got a lot of attention over the last little while and I think the way speed is managed um, uh, uh, as a problem in in sports even from you know return to play protocols into you know how GPS is used and stuff like that it's it's so varied right now there's no real theories um, in team sports, I don't think that that are you know universally accepted or even being tested out right now. Soon, mm. and, and hence hence that need for speed course that we put together to at least give people a framework and a and a way of working through the problems without necessarily directly saying to people you should do X. So doing that course has just blown up that whole field for me in my mind, and and, and you know and go and really seek out those problems in team sports and, and see if there's anything I can develop that, that 
you know, might help manage those problems or come up with more, I guess, more feasible solutions uh, to to enhancing the performance of speed in team sports. Would you would you ever with your programs and stuff like that? Obviously, like we spoke about, there's a lot of bullshit around at the moment on Instagram and stuff. Do you still stick to the the heavy sleds, the heavy prowlers, and everything like that in your speed stuff, or is it metal? Do you go to the other ladders and stuff like that or there's no ladders or what's your protocol type on that or the training wise to get people faster um, yeah i mean you know give you some historical context when i first came back from canada sort of mid to late 90s saq was becoming all the rage yeah you know i worked with alan pearson saq you know uh, we you know we were, i was heavily involved in that kind of which is kind of great because i was coming from stew and track and field and like oh it's great it's speed it's agility it's not all just weight room based stuff um but that's where you know after a year or so of looking at ladders you know i'm like what stimulus is that giving me yeah uh, and how does that relate to problems in the game and it it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at the feet in ladders where their head's position and look at the game and go got- where's the correlation so why is it still so used? Like, obviously, we're in the UK. What I see on Twitter is uh, we got Jerry DeFilippo on coming in next month. I'm not sure if you're aware of him. And, you know, he hates ladders and stuff like that. But why why in America and the NFL are they so obsessed still with ladders? And they still use stopwatches in the combine, don't they? Do you know yeah. Do you know why? Like, is it just because they won't change or? Yeah, it's like a bit It's sound. It seems like they're always got this huge sea of knowledge of journals and all this research but yet they're almost stuck in their ways of stopwatches and ladders um i, I don't I, I personally don't understand it but just shed a little bit of light on that if you can Nick, please um well funny when i was chatting with matt gildersleeve the other day he had this idea that you know in europe coaches are so much more integrated and we're all so much open-minded on things you know and I'm like, hmm, interesting you think that about us in Europe. Now I'm over here. I've, I've met coaches who are open-minded and, you know, there's, there's pockets of, uh, of, of, of what I would call maybe, you know, better practice over here. But you've got to look at the, look at the, um, the landscape over here. If you're a high school S&C coach, you get your kudos from how many college scholarships you might get your players into, right? And if you want a college job, there's this kind of maybe hierarchy that's in place here with that too. So that's how you get your your rewards, your wraps, your potential for career development. Um, whereas, you know, an academy coach in England is an academy coach and that's what they want to be and that's what they specialise in. Maybe I'm not saying everyone's the same way. Um, you've got commercialism, you know, you've got the sponsorship, um, you know, how many times have you seen elite players with a certain drinks bottle in their hand and you speak to them and they never, they never normally touch that stuff, right? True, true. So there's a whole, again, it's, it's a complex question, right? As to why all that stuff, you know, and, and sometimes the ladders, right? I mean, do I ever use ladders for fast feet? No. Might I hop through ladders or use them to do some A skip drills where you might jump out of the side as a distraction where you're just kind of moving through and you've got to run to the side, run to the other side, you know, 
I think there's, there's other versatile ways which sometimes team sports athletes, um, you know, don't have the greatest concentration span, you know? So sometimes it's the tool there as an aid to, to help me move the session along, you know, that it, it might just give them a different picture to look at on a certain day, you know? So it might be that I'm just doing a skip drills, whether, you know, I want flat foot placement through the ladders, but out of that, they're into some hurdle jumps, you know, and they'll, you know, come back down on the warm up with some lunge walks or something like that, you know? So it's always about, is it, is it going to aid my session? It's not the session. The ladders do not provide me the stimulus. It's what I do in them that is going to provide me the right stimulus. Um, you know, so do I use them at times? Yes, if I feel they're going to again give me and be an and give me the stimulus I'm looking for. Do I use them for speed development? No. And sleds yeah. and stuff you mentioned as well. I mean. You know, the sled stuff. I mean, what do you guys think about that? Because it went from, oh, the sled shouldn't be any more than, you know, 10% of your body weight because it messes up your form to like, no, now let's crank it up there, right? It's got to be 80 to 100% plus of your body weight. What's your guys' thoughts on that? I would say the heavy loads, more force, the faster you're going to get. Is, is that, that good that way? Is that, you know, if you're pushing, pulling stuff night and you're going to put more load on there, then more force is going to be applied through the floor. So, and then essentially you're going to get faster. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably agree. I think it is, if it's applicable, it's like, you know, do you have room to put a prowler in? You know, yeah. do you, are you, are you gymming in a broom cupboard? Do you, can it even be applied? But I think it's all, if it fits and it sounds really like a, a rubbish answer, but does it actually fit the athlete? Would it be more applicable to maybe just, squat heavy split um heavy split squat rear foot bulgarian um if it fits but i quite i quite like a heavy prowler if i'm completely honest um if i was creating a fast athlete put it that way with, with i've got a question with the biomechanics so you, obviously we, you teach biomechanics when you sprint and everything like that but you look at some of uh, the top footballers in the world and stuff like that and how they actually run you know you came up with the earlier you said about the story with the striker how you try to change his running technique would you touch like a Ronaldo and a Messi or anyone like that with their sprinting mechanics or would you you know because it's such a tight playing field is it one of the famous sprinters um who was it was it Michael Johnson maybe was he a funny sprinter and then someone tried to change him and then it went slower I'm not sure if that was him or not would you try and change those top athletes or so again, I think it comes down to what's the problem that you're seeing and identify yeah. the right problem first. You know, um, if there's some, you know, ongoing chronic calf issue or groin issue and, and you know, as a team, you, you know, you, you're thinking, oh, this might be a, a running issue, then, then you can look at that, right? Um, uh, so you have to the problem and the nature of the problem. Um, you know, in that sense, it might be more of a, a simple stroke complicated problem whereby, um, you know, you can identify stability issues or force production issues that might be easy to rectify. 
doesn't read this very well in the game scenario and he's making the wrong choices, right? That's a completely different problem, that level that you're working from. Um, the older the athlete, um, the more ingrained, um, you know, their, their system probably is. So you, again, um, what's the nature of the problem? What's the risks of, of changing this? Because there's always a risk reward in this as well. Um, how far away from, from the rules uh, of sprinting, you know, are they? What's the, the, the bandwidth, but also what's their unique abilities? So you've got to throw all that into the pot and, and, and kind of, you know, look at that and then, and then synthesize an approach with, with all the team, with the player, the therapy staff, and look at this in its entirety. Um, so, you know, would you change it? Maybe, yeah. uh, maybe not. You've, you've got to, you've really got to drill down on what, what you really agree is, is the problem. Um, now with the sleds and stuff, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's another way of getting, it's you know, running with a heavy sled is closer to sprinting than squatting is, you know, but squatting can still be a natural part of that start with the athlete first. They just don't, they just can't generate force. Can they generate force in something that is like sprinting? Then you've got the sleds. And then can they actually sprint? You know, so I think you've, you've got a reasonable uh, rationale there and, and, and logical progression. And it means that, you know, I know my rugby boys, right? I mean, they're not going to want to squat four times a week, but you put them on some sled work. Again, you've got a somewhat heavier stimulus uh, for leg development. Uh, when the last their back is telling them they want to do today is squat, you know. So th there's it's the clever art really of how you weave uh, this in again, still based on on what stimulus am I trying to overlay? What resources have I already tapped or taxed into yesterday, this morning, this week that I might need to create that stimulus in a way that doesn't necessarily tap into those exact resources because they might be a little bit exhausted. Uh, today as well yeah and just a very very quickly because i know we've eaten so much of your time already but in terms of three tips for obviously this is aimed at young coaches just helping them as best as possible or just coaches in general but what three tips would you give to any coach Um, so uh, there's one quote that I like, which a friend of mine gave me a long time ago, and uh, it comes from actually a, a Saint Edmund, who, who actually was from Abingdon, believe it or not, or, or lived in Abingdon for part of his life, my hometown. Um, and it's uh, and often it gets attributed to Gandhi, but I think it, I found out it was Saint Edmund, and it's uh, um, study as if you will live forever live as if you'll die tomorrow. And what I take from that is always be curious and you know, love your life and your job. And that you know, goes back to what we said earlier. Do you study or do you go and get experience? Get out there and coach, have fun with it and find environments that you kind of thrive in. And you know what, don't, don't force yourself into internships and stuff like that that aren't working for you. You know, if they're not working for you, go and, go and get another one somewhere. That sounds easier said than done. So, you know, be curious and, um, you know, just try and try and get as many experiences as you can. Um, 
I think the other thing as well that, as I said earlier about being a dickhead, um, you know, it, it's important to build a good a good network, but also a a network that would also challenge you. You know, don't don't be in a place where it's always easy. You know, find places that will definitely challenge and develop you, and that goes a little bit to what Jim and I spoke about earlier. Is try and find that variety of of experiences as well. Don't don't just stay in your comfort zone. Be be prepared to stretch yourself a little bit more too. And, and finally, really, if you if you don't love coaching and people, get out of this career. Don't do it. I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you said that. Yeah, um, yeah no, I couldn't agree with the, la the last one. Absolutely spot on. To be fair, all three, but that last one especially because if you don't want to get out of bed on a Sunday or a Saturday morning and go coach someone, then you are not, you know, you're in the wrong job type thing. Um, I know us two absolutely love coaching. It doesn't really matter who it is um, in terms of, you know, person where they're at sort of at for me personally, but I absolutely love co coaching um, and definitely haven't. It sort of feels like, I think when you find that sort of team or sport or whatever, you sort of don't feel like you're working. If that makes sense. It's almost like a, almost like a passion to do it so you don't really feel like you're working um but yeah no thank you obviously thank you very much for your time um it's been absolutely having you on um and yeah thanks very much thanks so much nick and, you know probably wants to follow up on anything with me you know um i'm always up for a good coffee chat uh, as well uh, you, know, you know you guys again or any of your listeners um feel free to reach out and if there's anything you know they want to dive into a little bit more with me. Um, always happy to do that. So thanks for having me, guys. Sure. Amazing. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We hope you were able to take something from it and enjoyed it as much as us. It would be a great help if you could hit the download or subscribe button below and share the podcast to fellow coaches, friends or athletes.